This episode of Let's Think On It comes from an excerpt from O Brother Radio with Will Lockamy, Reed Lockamy, and Dr. Mark Westfall. Welcome to Let's Think On It. Today's podcast is on the coronavirus. The podcast comes from a conversation we had with Stephen Thruckeld. He's an infectious disease specialist in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, diagnosed the first case of the novel coronavirus in Memphis. As you'll see, this will come from a scientific, uh, non-political, uh, non-sensational uh, viewpoint. And I think you'll enjoy the podcast. You know, obviously we're talking about the coronavirus. Yeah, sure. Um, and the effect it's having on us. So I've got two guests. The first guest um, is Steve Thruckeld. And he's a physician, an MD. He's an infectious disease specialist in Memphis, Tennessee. And Steve and I also are good friends. We went to college together and to med school together. And I'll just tell you, and I'm not just blowing smoke, he is one of the smartest people I know. He can hear you now. He oh, really? Yeah, yeah, oh, good. He's already on the line. So, all right. So, Steve, hey, how you doing, buddy? When you called after all these years, I thought you were calling to collect an old debt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had lost contact for a while. and uh, But when this happened, I said, man, i got to call my buddy Steve because he is uh, – so knowledgeable, and, and I knew he'd be all over this, and sure enough, he is. So, uh, and we're doing this by phone, by the way, for the listeners. First time I've ever done this, but uh, Steve's in Memphis, and he was kind enough to stop his busy schedule because he's covered up with all this uh, uh, virus stuff going on. And uh, so, Steve, thanks, thanks for joining the show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate the time. Hey, man. So, you know, let's just cut to the chase. I mean, what is the deal with this virus compared to? The viruses we come across all the time. Why is this causing such different human behavior? Yeah, you know, I guess the, the easiest comparison is the flu, influenza. And, you know, uh, you know there's no auto accident week on, on Discovery Channel, right? There's only shark week. And, uh, and so the unknown factor of this plays, I think, a great deal in, into people's behavior. Uh, and it does have some serious potential problems. Obviously, we've seen the data. We've seen the pictures from Asia, from Italy now. Uh, but it has a mortality in some places and in some situations up to 10 times that of influenza. But it tends to be fairly segregated into the elderly population. So <laughs> it is a significant disease. Uh, interestingly, not at all severe in young, very young people. And, and really, more than 80% of people that are young and healthy don't get terrible symptoms, even symptoms enough to present for medical care. But again, in the elderly population and those who have underlying medical problems, heart problems, lung problems, um, you know, it can it can be devastating up to a 15 to 20 percent mortality rate. We don't have a vaccine. Uh, there are just some things about this that are unknowns uh, that, that make it, I think, scarier. For so so this is a I mean, we have coronaviruses. We've we've all had a coronavirus before. Correct. Undoubtedly, there are, three, there are several of them that circulate normally and cause essentially common colds. OK, so but this is a new type of coronavirus and it's a beta coronavirus much on the order of the the first sars virus and the mers virus probably comes from bats although this virus may there was a sequence published coincidentally in about october of a pangolin which is a scaly anteater looking thing in china very endangered but also used for food and medicinal purposes and so there was some concern that it could have been passed through that animal first uh, after bats but Either way, I mean, there was, that was a concern because it was the live animal market there in Wuhan that they thought they had traced at least the first cases to. And so we know this is a novel virus by looking at it with certain techniques. I mean, you know, how does it, how does it look different than other coronaviruses? How do we know it's brand new? 
to humans? Well, you know, we actually, in, in, a, in an unprecedented kind of progress, we actually had the sequence out very quickly, just a few weeks after the, uh, the discovery of this virus in December. It's been unprecedented kind of progress on this virus. So it just is a different virus from sequence. It's, it's analogous. It's a family member. Uh, but but uh, but truly a different virus in that family. So you're sequ- sequencing the the genes, you mean the 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 yeah uh, you sequence the, the, the base entire, the base uh, pairs. The, yeah, the entire genome of the uh, of the virus we, we sort of have now. The Chinese provided a lot of that on on the front end, and 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 that's of course once you have the genome, once you have the sequence of nucleotides of of a virus or of anything for that matter. That's why the human genome project has been so important. Once you have that. You're then off to the races to do all sorts of things for vaccines, for medicines, uh, and for ways to combat it. Gotcha. And so because we've never seen our body, the human body has never seen this particular virus before, it makes it a little bit more concerning from an infectious disease and epidemiology standpoint? Yeah, our immune system has never seen this before. And you see the same thing in the flu, right? In 09, when we had the H1N1 kind of virus that jumped over, you know, flu is primarily a bird virus. And this is more of a virus that's primarily in bats and camels and some cat species. And every now and then, either of those two and others can jump over into humans. And when that happens, for the first period of time afterwards, it frequently is much more severe and problematic. Okay, so long story short, we're going to, just like we have the other viruses, we're going to be exposed to it over time. I mean, the big scheme of things, mankind is going to be okay. We're going to figure out how, to, I mean, our body's going to, you know, identify it in the future, but... In the short run, it, it's the ramp up and how quickly people get sick that has people concerned. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think it's accurate because, you know, you, you've, you've heard of sort of blunting the curve has been a sort of terminology recently. When this thing roars through, you know, an air, uh, a country or city or what have you, when it, when it uh, infects a lot of people at once and can make a lot of elderly people sick at once, you can actually sort of overrun the system. And so the idea and, and by system being the healthcare really, system. Right, exactly. And there are only so many breathing machines you can have in a city, right? And, and if you get too many people very sick, you can, you can run into a problem. And that's part of the reason behind some of all these closures. By blunting that, you can take a thousand people that were going to get sick in your town and spread those out over a few months rather than a few you know, days to weeks. And that will be a lot easier to take so and the, to handle, so actually. In theory, the same number of people could get infected. Let's say a million people could get infected. But if you spread that out over a month or two or three, as opposed to a week or two or three, then you don't, you don't tax the healthcare system as much, so everybody can get more appropriate care. Is that that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I think that's true. And you know, I mean, the U.S. is, uh, for all of our warts, uh, the you know the un- unprecedented, the the best medical care, particularly acute medical care and critical care stuff uh, that the world has ever seen. And then we get sort of criticized for being kind of a bloated system and expensive and so forth, but. Uh, this may be this may be one of those times where that all that capability pays off. Gotcha. So yeah, um, this is uh, Will, the other brother of the Lockamy brothers. One of the brothers. We'll meet at some point. Uh, so tell me this: people, <laughs> there are two sides. It seems to be uh, some people are saying, "Oh, everybody, just chill out. This is overblown. It's a media issue. It's not a pandemic issue." And then there are other people that are taking it seriously and and maybe almost too seriously. Where, where do you fall on that? Yeah, like many things in my life, I fall sort of in the middle. It, it is it is something that, at least now, you know, the flu kills tens of thousands of people every year just in the United States. This has killed between three and 4,000 people in the entire world so far. So Let's, let's, restate, no that. Compar- let's restate that. Ten, tens of thousands, like thirty to 60,000 a year average flu deaths in the U.S., 
And so Every far, year. this has killed about 4,000 in the world. Right. Correct? Okay. And, Carry on. And, and that's as of today. We, we don't know what's going right. to do. We don't right, have right, a vaccine. Right. We don't know when it'll stop. But right. I mean, so far, there's no comparison as to the danger to you. We have people in the artificial lung machines right now in our hospital from the flu. We had a couple of terrible new cases yesterday. So so there's no question the comparison right now. Um, but, but you know, this thing could be bad. It's been bad, obviously, in other countries. Um, and, you know, it, it, we have to prepare for, you know, worse than we are seeing right now. We have to prepare for it to get a lot worse because it really could. I mean, I think if we got to, a, like, looking at our friends in Italy, that, that's a pretty serious situation at this point, correct? There's no question, and, and I think we're better equipped with critical care sort of stuff. I mean, look at it this way. It, it just rampaged through the most population-dense country in the history of Earth, China, uh, with a fairly poor healthcare system and a fairly poor access to that poor healthcare system, and it killed about 3,000 people. Now, they managed to sort of begin to get it under control now. I think the odds of it coming across the, the ocean to the United States, a much, much, much less dense populated country with the best healthcare system the world has ever seen. We know it's coming. We know who it kills. We know who to protect. It's hard for me to imagine that it's going to kill you know, many times that in the United States. It's just hard for me to imagine that. But we, we don't need to be casting off a thousand deaths either. We, 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 need to, we need to work hard to protect those people because they tend to be our elderly and our infirm. Uh, and and you know, we need to work very hard to protect those people. Do you think, though, that there is an argument, and I've heard this made, that China, um, like you mentioned, has its complications and difficulties uh, when it comes to their system and whatnot, but they also have something that's very valuable, which is you know, a system of government where people are somewhat used to the government showing up and saying, hey, here's what you are going to do. We're going to put you in this facility. Whereas, of course, in the United States, we're much more reluctant to have someone tell us what to do or we're going to quarantine you or put you in this facility. Do you, do you think there's a, an argument to be made that we are maybe less dense, but particularly at risk because we are less inclined to do what the government tells us sometimes? Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. But I mean, we started out not liking taxation without representation, and we've never quit. I mean, people are not always they're not always uh, going along with these quarantine orders. But and we've never seen anything like this, I think, at least in, in our lifetimes. But, the you know, this health department and so forth do have the authority of law to put you in, in, in place and to to quarantine you. And we might see some of that that will be somewhat surprising and offensive to people. Uh, but they do have the authority to do that. It's just not used. And you're right. I think people are more resistant to that sort of thing. So that could be that could be a, a weakness that we have in terms of these sorts of, of things. I agree completely. So the the the. Um the clo- the the uh, closing of events and the diminishment of gatherings and whatnot, um, from your perspective, is that um, you know we we don't do that with the flu, but right. this one's obviously we don't have an exposure to it, so potentially more, I guess more uh, you know likely to spread faster. Uh, are these measures, in your opinion, uh, reasonable? Are they excessive? For you know, or are you you know somewhere in between? Yeah, well, it's tough. I, th- I think the reality is that we're not going to know for six months to a year, if ever, whether this was genius and proactive uh, saving people or if it was overreaction. We may not ever know that answer. We're certainly not going to know for a while. Um, You're not going to get me to criticize it, however, because if you look at the data that are coming out now, the the places in the world that have been most aggressive and proactive at these sorts of measures, uh, you know, unlike China and Italy, uh, more like Hong Kong uh, and the like, 
they, they're the ones that have done the best. And so I think that's driven some of this over the last few days. And some of these measures have kind of gotten out, of, out front even of the CDC and local health department uh, suggestions. But, you know, I, I hope that at the end of this that we're going to say, you know what, we took five steps uh, that were very crucial. And we'll look back and go, we don't know which one it was, but weren't we smart at, at doing those things? And, and uh, so I think the jury will, will be out for a long time and may actually stay out on these things. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Threckeld out of Memphis. He's an infectious disease specialist. Uh, Dr. Threckeld, here in our state of Alabama, there's some curiosity as we look at the map that has gone from <laughs> you know, one red state to two red states and uh, which states have infections that have been found and not. Uh, and now it seems like basically the whole country outside of, I think, maybe us in West Virginia and Minnesota, maybe there's one other. Uh, we are just there kind of out there on an island of no infections have been found. Um also, it has been reported, the last number I heard earlier was that less than 50 tests have been administered here in the state. What's your take on this? Do you, do you think possibly it is here in the state? Uh, and where are we with testing? Yeah, well, I was in Alabama. I was at UAB for eight years, partly with Mark, and so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a near and dear place to me. Uh, I think, yeah, I think by the time you find the first case, and, and we, we took care of the first case in Memphis uh, just over the last week or so, by the time you see that first case, there's probably a fair amount of it in, in the community. Just You just happen to find the one. So I think we have to take into account that that is the case. And, and you mentioned testing. Uh, it's a huge point. I think what we need to do now is to ramp up testing aggressively. And that's a, a very much a changing thing. Just now, at least three that I know of uh, commercial uh, tests are available now that will augment what the health departments are able to do. And that's going to take a lot of pressure off the state health departments for testing. We need to find out where this is. We need to find out who has it. We need to find out whether these things we're doing make kind of mathematical and data sense. And, and to do that, you really got to know where it is. But let's let's talk about testing for a second, because I also want to help the the listener understand what we mean by aggressive testing, because some people think, well, that means if I start having a cough uh, or sore throat, I need to go to my doctor and get tested for the coronavirus. And that's not the type I don't think that's the type of testing you're talking about. I mean, you've no, got to, think- you've got to be um, specific with your testing um, and resources. And so how do you determine? I mean, because, you know, if you tested everyone who had a cough or cold, I mean, you you can't do that. So how do you how do you pick who you test and tell the average listener, you know, when should they worry about this? Sure. Well, one of the problems with this is that so many people won't get very sick. I mean, it's not a problem in itself, but but it makes it hard to find the footprints of this disease. So, uh, you know, the average young, healthy person, 80 percent will not even require any contact with healthcare. So um, and so, yeah, the, the, the symptoms that are classic of it, however, are fever, cough and shortness of breath. Anytime you have fever and shortness of breath, you probably need to talk to your doctor, right? And so uh, that, that this is no exception to that. So you, you don't want to march into your doctor's office with this without letting them know you're coming because you can un- unnecessarily expose folks. But I think for those who have compatible illness with those symptoms, we want to test a lot of people. We, we've been limited just because you had to go to the health department and go to the state lab and they had limited tests. But now particularly with the company tests available, we can be much more liberal with that. And you'd rather test somebody that didn't need it rather than miss somebody that did. Uh, but you're right. The common cold is probably doesn't require testing. But at the same time, again, the, the difficult part is that there will be people out there 
that have not very severe symptoms but still have this, it can still be valuable to know who those people are. And one thing to consider, it, you know, it's my understanding that uh, countries like South Korea and uh, maybe to a large extent China at this point, one of the things they're doing is very aggressively not testing necessarily for coronavirus, even though they are, but they're also very aggressively taking people's temperatures and then saying, oh, okay, you have an elevated temperature. Now let's go through you know, a series of protocol, test you for flu, test you for these things. And then if we think you have a probable case, then we're going to you know, put you away and, and run our, you know, use our valuable resources with coronavirus tests. So that's another way that but potentially we could be more aggressive with testing, not necessarily testing for coronavirus itself all the time. Yeah, I think so. I mean, with the, with the small caveat that some people will have very mild illness and you still might miss those without a lot of fever. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And we, we actually at our hospital are screening everybody that walks in the door for fever. Um, and you will see the health departments, particularly, they've had to sort of triage who they test just because of availability. And so they would have you, to show you, show you how complicated this is, they would basically make you do the other viral panel for the things that we know about, flu, respiratory, syncytial virus, and others. And only if that was negative would they then move on and test for coronavirus. Even that's complicated because there are more and more reports of people testing for two things at once. So the whole thing is is changing rapidly. The data are coming out rapidly. And, and there are a lot of ways in which we change courses on these things as we learn about the virus. So the... Um Back to the to the average listener. So, if someone, well, let me back up. I think a lot of what the average listener is learning through this process is basic um, uh, epidemiology practices for when you get sick. So, I mean, isolation. Isolate yourself if you feel sick from other people, which is probably good to do anytime you're sick, right? Yeah, that's a huge point. I think in that in that there's nothing uh, there's nothing space age about we're talk what we're talking about here. This is the same advice that your grandmother gave you as how to avoid the common cold, the flu. The main thing is hand hygiene. Wash your hands frequently with soap and water for 20 seconds, which is longer than most people do it. If you can, if you don't have that available, use an alcohol hand gel of 60% or more alcohol. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. All of these things you know, or how you ward off the things that we already know. And it's hoped, actually, that if we have a new awareness, in part, yes, through fear of coronavirus, you could actually save lives in a net sense, even, by cutting down on influenza deaths and other respiratory deaths. Because these things, we've always needed to do this. It was it was appropriate last year, this year, and next year when the flu comes back, hopefully without coronavirus this time, uh, and that'll save lives. And so the, the, the things are the same, actually. All right, Dr. Thuckle, before we let you go, I... One thing we cannot figure out is why are people buying so much toilet paper? <laughs> what's the what's the story? Um, I've been looking for a large diarrheal epidemic, uh, but uh, but we've not uh, we have not seen that. So yeah, it's uh, I guess you have to order it on Amazon now. I'm I'm not sure about. I had someone complain that to me just just today. So yeah, there are we all have to sacrifice at all age groups for this infection. Apparently, uh, whether whether or not you're hard hit by it or not. So. Quickly, because we're running out of time. What What are your thoughts on helping to calm the the social anxiety that people are feeling? What 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 would you say to people to, to kind of help them weather this, you know, process and the inconveniences and, and significant effect on commerce uh, sure. without panic? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the the bottom line is, as I say, is a high mortality uh, compared to the flu. 
but it's very much, very much uh, cordoned off into the elderly population. We as, uh, I'm less and less young as you're you, but, um, I, you know, we in the younger population, uh, yes, we may have to sacrifice going to school or to the, the ball game. It is hoped that that will prevent the, the virus from rampaging through the community and then getting to and attacking our elderly family members and friends because those are the ones that we're protecting. Same reason we get a flu shot, right? I mean, I mean, uh, the school kids that are out for school because of this are not going to be hit hard by this virus at all. But they may take it home to parents with medical problems, to grandparents who are elderly, and wipe them out. I mean, it, it can it can be a big problem. So that's why we get flu vaccines uh, to protect those folks too, yeah. the the people with medical problems. So it, 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 so many people are not going to be hit hard themselves. But think of it as we're doing this to protect uh, the people in our population that we need to protect. Yeah, and that's been my whole thing with like traveling next week or not. It's not about me. I'm not worried about myself uh, being sick. It's about being the person that contracts it and then, of course, goes to have dinner with my dad, who yeah. is in that risk category. Of course, also, yeah. I don't think I'm going to have any better chance of getting it in New York than I am of getting it here. I, I'm kind of to that point now. So. Yeah. And the other thing is that if, you, if you're a healthcare worker, so a lot of people that I work with, you know, they can't afford to be off for 14 days when the guy next to him on the plane had it, that. puts them into quarantine. And so there are a lot of motivations for that. You know, you want to, the logistics of this, particularly with international travel, are now getting pretty complicated. And, and, and that tends to pretty, I think, discourage those kinds of trips. So last question. If this same virus comes back around next year, would one year's worth of worldwide exposure help us to not have to have such a dramatic reaction with our social behavior? Or does it take more than that? Well, I think we have pretty short epidemiologic memories in general. So I think it probably would cause less panic. Long-term immunity to coronaviruses is a bit complicated. Probably would get good short-term immunity, um, and it probably would be less severe, that sort of thing. So yeah, I mean, we, we saw this in uh, we saw this in West Nile. It's, it's a mosquito-borne illness. It's not a contagious illness. But you think about some of the near hysteria at that point. Uh, you never hear about it anymore. It still happens. Um, but uh, so it's a similar sort of thing. I think. Yeah, I think you you'll see less uh, social panic at that time. Um, and uh, but again, it's it's the unknown right now. We don't know that it'll take the summer off like the flu usually does. We certainly hope so. But but there's no guarantee. Uh, from the just the virus standpoint that we know that's going to occur. Awesome. Dr. Stephen uh, Threlkold, thank you so much. Uh, great talking to you. This is fantastic. Steve, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Great to see you guys. Okay. Yep. To listen to Dr. Mark Westfall live, check out O Brother Radio on Birmingham Mountain Radio, 107.3 FM in Birmingham, 97.5 in Tuscaloosa, at bhammountainradio.com or on the free BMR app. Join in with your questions and comments on Twitter at Lockamy Brothers. <laughs>